Good morning. Happy Father's Day. If this is your first time visiting with us, you're catching us in the middle of our sermon series on the life of David. And it's called Searching for a King. And today we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 24. And if you would, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of wicked, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. What do you do when life doesn't go your way? What do you do when circumstances don't turn out the way that you'd like? What do you do when life takes an unexpected turn and you find yourself in a vulnerable position? Or you find all your security in life going right out the window? What do you do when life doesn't go your way? 
Well, life did not go the way my dad intended in the summer of 1952. He was five years old, and he was riding up and down the streets of Houstonia, Missouri, on his brand new tricycle. And he had uh, the top down, hair blowing in the wind, one hand on the wheel. Life was good. But then, Jimmy Rissler, the neighborhood bully, decided that he wanted that tricycle. And so he comes up from behind my dad and surprises him and grabs my dad and throws him off the tricycle, and he takes the tricycle and he starts joyriding up and down the sidewalks. And so my dad is just hurt from having been thrown off of his tricycle and having his prized possession stolen from him. And so he runs home crying, and he runs up on the front porch, and he reaches for the front door, and he yanks it open. It's locked. The door's locked. And so he's left confused on the front porch as to why his house is locked, and he's crying. And then he sees my grandpa slowly walk up from the shadows on the other side of the screen door, and he walks up, puts his hands in his pockets, and looks at my dad, and he says, Boy, this door will be unlocked as soon as you go over there and whip him. (laughs) And so my dad is far more afraid of my World War II vet grandfather And so he runs out, runs all the way down the street, sees Jimmy, grabs him by the shoulder, spins him around, and just lands a little five-year-old right hook right across his nose. (laughs) Jimmy falls one way, my dad falls the other way, they stare at each other on the ground, and then they both burst into tears and run in the opposite directions (laughs) all the way home. And my father runs as fast as he can, fearing for his life, and he gets up on the porch, grabs the screen door, and it's unlocked. It's funny how this story captures a lot of human nature. We don't like conflict. If you do like conflict, well, then you are probably a bully, and you make life miserable for everybody else. But at the same time, when things don't go your way or somebody hurts you, in the end, you never really lose that instinct to go over there and whip them. Now, you might not bop somebody on the nose, even though that might sound kind of nice every once in a while. But maybe you're a little more subtle in the way you deal with conflict. Maybe you deal with conflict by the cold shoulder. Or maybe you deal with conflict by taking any opportunity to have the upper hand and use cutting and sarcastic words to jab at them. See, the question of what you do when life doesn't go your way is really a question of how you handle conflict. So when life doesn't go your way, how do you handle conflict? Now, I think it's safe to say that Saul and David probably did not think that life would turn out the way that it did either. Now, think about it. I doubt when Saul is anointed king, I doubt that he's sitting there thinking that he'll spend the next decade pursuing an enemy from within his own kingdom, and his kingdom will be falling apart. And I doubt that the day that David was anointed king, I I doubt that he went to bed that night, laying in bed, imagining that he would be running for his life so many years later, before he ever sits down on the throne. And today in our passage, we reach the climax of the David and Saul saga. We have two men that have been anointed king, and in the end there can only be one, and the future of the kingdom is hanging in the balance. It's like watching the Bible's version of a Game of Thrones play out. As you watch these two men waiting and anticipating to see who is going to come out on top. And so we have two men anointed king today, 
David is on the run with his motley crew, while Saul is chasing him with the armies of Israel. And of all the ways that this story could have played out, a secret assassination, a large epic battle between two forces, a fight to the death kind of duel like in Gladiator, instead the climax takes place in a small cave in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sure as I read the text, you could almost laugh about it. Here you have the great King Saul going to the bathroom in a cave. Quite vulnerable. And he chooses the one cave where the very person he least expects is in it with him. The whole story is absolutely stranger than fiction. And it reminds you that all of these circumstances are not playing out because of irony or coincidence, or happenstance. It's because someone is orchestrating all of it. When I was in college, a friend of mine knocked on my dorm room door. And he said, hey, we're, uh, we're going to go spelunking. Do you want to go? And I said, well, I don't really like small spaces. But he said, I'll be fine. So I said, okay. And we went. And uh, a group of us couldn't be outdone, couldn't be seen as weak, so I decided to go. And when we drive out into the country, we have to park and we walk through, a, uh, walk through the, uh, the forest for a while before we ever get to the cave. And so we come through the clearing and we see the cliffs ahead of us. And as we walk up on top of this hill, we see this massive opening to the cave. You could take this entire church and set it in the mouth of this cave, and the roof wouldn't touch the top, wouldn't touch any of the edges. This thing was massive, and it went back for 50 yards. And so I walk up in there, and it's beautiful in this cathedral-like cave, and so I'm just kind of enjoying it, and everybody's taking pictures, looking at it, and I'm like, hey, caving is awesome. This is great. It's not a big deal at all. And then my friend says, let's go back a little further. I want to show you something. And so we get our flashlights out, and we go back, and we go back for about five or ten minutes until it becomes completely dark, and so I have my flashlight looking for the next step so I don't slip. But then after a while, I actually just looked up to look at the beautiful ceiling, and the problem was is the ceiling had actually come to right about here, and I never knew it. And then we kept going a little bit more, and then we had to stoop down because the ceiling kept lowering and lowering. And then we had to stoop down even further, and then we had to get on our hands and knees and begin to crawl as the top of the cave slowly closed in on us. And then after a while, we couldn't go back any further without getting on our bellies and actually crawling, commando style. I am freaking out. But then the water starts running as we're crawling, and it gets deeper. And we have to hold our head above the water so that we can breathe in that narrow space between the water and the ceiling of the cave. And we keep going back. And then he calls back, we're here. And so he points to this small opening in a cave or in the wall of the cave. And he said, I'm going to go up in through there. I need you to push me through because it's so tight, I can't shimmy. And so we push him up through there, and then he calls back to us, just put your hands through the hole, and I'll drag you through. <laughs> so I put my hands through the hole, and I was next. I reach out into the dark, this dark cave, and I feel him grab me. And he pulls me through, and I feel the walls of the cave close in, and my breath catches in my chest. 
The Saul and David epic is playing out in the same exact way. Both of these men's stories started off so promising. You have Saul, anointed king, this great champion of Israel, the king that Israel finally wanted, they have now received. But so does David's story. He's anointed king secretly by Samuel, chosen by God as well. And he goes and defeats Goliath, and everything seems so promising. But the story continues to narrow in and close around them until they have to eventually confront one another when they least expect it. And the easy thing to miss in this story is the most important thing of this story, is that it's God Himself who is orchestrating and telling it. Which means it's God who actually creates the tension of this story. He is the one who actually went and anointed a second king while the first king was still on the throne. It's God who slowly and continuously narrows Saul and David after all these years to a small claustrophobic cave to where they can't avoid each other. And it's the one place they never thought they'd meet. And so our passage today doesn't want you just to wrestle with the story that you're reading. It also wants you to wrestle with the storyteller. How do you respond to knowing that you are not ultimately the storyteller and it's God who is shaping the events and circumstances of your life? Passages like this confronts you with the fact that you are not in control. God is. And the tough thing is that God doesn't ask you what you think before He acts. He doesn't get your opinion, and He doesn't always share your values or your priorities. He doesn't ask you to share your iCal with Him, so He makes sure He doesn't interrupt any of your plans. He doesn't text you and ask you you if next Tuesday would be a good time for you to suffer or be uncomfortable or go through difficult circumstances. He just acts and does what He wants and does what He thinks is good. And at the climax of our story today, we find out how these two men respond to the storyteller. God places both men in very difficult circumstances, and He invites them to make the story that He is telling their story. But the two men have completely different responses. So how does Saul respond? Up to this point, he has been pursuing David, living in fear and paranoia and anger and rage. He lashes out at anyone. He punishes anyone that gets in his way. And all these years he's chased David, and his own greed and his lust for power have consumed him. But God knows just what it will take to bring him low and humiliate him. And Saul walks out of the cave after he thought it was just another normal bathroom break. And he hears the one voice he never expected to hear. David calls out from behind him from the mouth of the cave, and he delivers this long speech, proving to him that what has motivated him this entire time isn't true. If David wanted Saul to be dead, he would be. And he has the proof in his hands. And you can imagine Saul for a second, after all these years hearing this, Unexpecting to hear David, he's wide-eyed, his heart is racing. As before all of these thousands of men, David unfolds all of his logic and turns it upside down 
on his head. He has blamed David for making his life the way it is. This whole time he thought David was trying to kill him and steal what he prized most. So in that moment, Saul looks down at his torn robe and he can no longer run from the one truth he's never wanted to believe. And he realizes that it wasn't David that has authored this conspiracy against him. It was God. The biggest threat to Saul's kingdom was never David. It has been God all along. And Saul weeps and weeps. The bottom has just fallen out for him. And the truth is, he has to face the fact that God has given what is most precious to him to David. And in Saul's response, we hear all the right words. He says all the right things, but his heart shows something completely different. Because Saul's tears are not tears of repentance. They're tears of self-pity and self-loathing. Because Saul will go on from here in the chapters that follow, and he will continue to pursue David. He'll continue to do things his own way. And in the end, he will self-destruct and die alone. Because he can still never let go of his kingdom. And he will never, ever humble himself before God because Saul cannot come to terms with the fact that God did not want the same things that he wanted. And what God wanted was just too costly for him. And he returns home a defeated and sad man. And he can never see the fact that his own greed and his own lust for his own kingdom destroyed everything around him. He was ripping the kingdom apart. He destroyed his family. He severed any possible relationship that he could have with his son. But he never comes to a place of sorrow. And when life became difficult for Saul, it exposed what he loved more than anything else. And in the end, he could only see God as a bully that wanted to take his tricycle. And he had an opportunity to make God's story his story and to receive something far more precious and to participate in something far more beautiful. And he missed it. Because if Saul's tears had actually been tears of repentance, what would have happened is he wouldn't have gone home so quickly. What he would have done, first thing, was he would take the crown off of his head and he would put it on David's head. And he would bow to the king. Then he would turn around and he would look at the 3,000 men and he would repent for leading them all these years on a wild goose chase because it's what he wanted to pursue the wrong enemy. And he would have repented and said, I am so sorry that I have been a bad king. Then after that, he would have run home to his family and he would have run into his house, grabbed his estranged son that he alienated and he'd bring him close and he would say, son, I am so sorry that I have been a bad father. Because the truth is, what your heart truly longs for never only affects you. And what do you love more than Jesus? What is it you love more than Jesus? I, I think you'd find your answer to that question when you actually come to the answer of your first question. What do you do when life doesn't go your way? What do you do when you realize that you are not 
king. And it's in these circumstances where all of your pretense is uncovered and your heart is exposed. And this is where we have to face the very sobering reality of how God works in my life and how He works in your life. He isn't afraid to put you in difficult circumstances because He isn't afraid to wage war against your kingdom. And no matter how much you try to protect yourself, and no matter how much you try to hold on to it, it will never work. Because God knows exactly how to narrow your story to the place you feel most vulnerable and show you that you are not king. And He is. And it's in these moments of difficulty where our hearts are exposed and we see what we love more than anything else. But it's not just Saul who's suffering. David's suffering too. The one who was chosen by God to inherit the kingdom. He's on, his, he's on the run for his life all these years and now he's cornered in a cave and it feels like the end. And just like Saul, God continues to narrow his story to the place that he can't escape. He continues to lock the doors and force him to face the conflict that he's been running from all along. So how does David respond? Well, you can imagine that as David is hearing thousands of men outside the cave, that him and his men are in complete and utter fear, feeling the walls of that cave close in around them as they look for an escape. And then they hear somebody walking up to the cave and they think that they have been found out and that this is the end. But instead, in an odd stroke of providence, Saul walks into the cave all alone and uses the bathroom. Quite interesting. And certainly you can imagine the war raging in David's heart in this moment. His men telling him, kill him. Now's the time. Make this all go away. Stop this right now and end it. Go over there to Saul and kill him. Kill him and end it. This is our way out. He deserves this for the way he has treated you. Kill him. You can imagine that was a tempting offer. After all these years of suffering that Saul has put David under, and he wrestles with the extremely difficult dilemma, do I take the easy way to the throne and kill Saul and establish myself as king, or do I wait? And all of his men are coaxing him and prompting him to kill Saul, but David doesn't do it. He stays his hand, and he understands that God has created this situation. And it's also God that will get him out. And he will not try to escape and undo what God has done. David knows that if God wants Saul dead, then he would be. David knows that if God wants him on the throne, then he would be. And he recognizes that God's Hands have orchestrated all of these circumstances. But instead of grasping at the crown and protecting himself and clinging to it, he keeps his hands off. And he waits for God to crown him. But David's response continues to challenge us. Because he shows that waiting and trusting in God are actually very active words. They're not dormant, stale Stagnant words that mean we sit and do nothing. They're very active words because David doesn't 
continue to hide in the cave. He doesn't run and grab a six-pack and sit in the dark and drown his sorrows. He doesn't complain to anybody and everybody that would listen. He doesn't hop on Facebook and complain to the world about how miserable his life is. And at the end, he has hashtag free David at the end of it. He just doesn't do any of that. And he proves his trust in God by stepping out of the cave and into the conflict to bring peace and healing to the kingdom. So David walks out of the cave with his hands in the air showing peace to Saul and the thousands of men that were around him. He walks right into the hornet's nest and he confronts Saul by showing him that he was never trying to kill him. And he shows him the proof in his hands that if he wanted him dead, then he would be. But the most important thing that David says is that he tells Saul that he is willing to recognize that God has put them in this situation and he will not undo it. And he will rest his life in his hands and trust in God to deliver him. And throughout all of this story of David, we see David at his best when he steps into conflict and trusts God. And in this moment, David shows us a glimpse of how the kingdom of God is ultimately established. It's established by the one who humbles himself before God and entrusts himself to his goodness to deliver them. And so let me ask you, what would you like, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to be established in your life? What would it look like for God's story to become your story? Are you willing to bring healing to your marriage by going to your spouse and saying, I am so sorry that after all of these years, I have pursued my own comfort more than anything else, and I have hurt you? Are you willing that when your health goes, do you take it out on your family? Or do you turn to the author of your story when you feel helpless? Are you so devoted to your quality of life that you can't actually see anyone around you that is suffering that so desperately needs your help? And when you lose your job, are you willing to ask God to help you learn to trust in His plans for you rather than your own? You see, in moments of suffering, it's hard to see God at work. It's hard to imagine a God that will allow you to experience hardship. And you hear me talking today about how God is not afraid to put you in difficult circumstances, and it actually makes you quite scared. And it just brings fear into your heart, because you might find yourself in very difficult circumstances today. And you fear that God knows how to expose your heart and take the right thing away from you to bring you low. Take away your job, your health, financial security, take away a loved one, and it would just feel like the rest of life would fall apart with it. And the ceiling of the cave would slowly start to descend. And that's a place you do not want to go. We struggle with a God that is willing to let difficult things happen to us because it's so easy to think of Him as a bully that doesn't want anything good for you. But as you consider how vulnerable and claustrophobic it makes you feel, 
In the end, you're only going to find comfort when you realize that motivating all of God's power is His magnificent and gracious love for you. He doesn't want your pretense. He wants your heart. And it's only in difficult circumstances that we come to learn the difference. And it's the hardest thing to imagine, at least for me, whenever you go through a difficult time, isn't it? God's love, that God loves you. I'm sure you don't skip down the street on your tricycle saying that God loves you when you're going through a difficult and broken-hearted time because that's the time when it's the most difficult to see the truth. How can you imagine God's love for you when everything falls apart? Because you so often think, if you love me, how could you do this to me? Don't you know how much that meant to me? Don't you know how much work and effort I have put into this? Don't you know what all I have invested and you took it away from me? How can you say you love me? All you do is take away good things. How can you possibly say you love me and allow this to happen to me? And the problem is that our definitions of love are far too small. My, my sister, about ten years ago, had cancer. And my dad and I were sitting in our basement when we got the phone call from my mom as we were waiting for it. And my mom called and she said, it's cancer. And then she told us all that the doctor had said about she's going to have to go through months and months and months and cycles and cycles and cycles of chemo and radiation. And I remember feeling nothing but an overwhelming sense of sorrow and loss for knowing this dark cave she's staring into that she's going to have to go down. But would it have been loving if I would have said this? Don't do it. Don't get the treatment. Don't you know how much that's going to hurt you? I don't want to see you suffer. I don't want to see your hair fall out. I don't want to see you curl up in a ball for months on end because chemo and radiation brings you within an inch of your life. I don't want to see that happen to you. I don't want to see you suffer and experience hardship and pain. Find a way out. The truth is, that wouldn't have been love at all. And in the end, all I was left with is telling her, I know this is going to hurt so bad. But I love you. I love you so much. When you love someone, truly, you have to be willing to let them experience pain and hardship to find healing. And it's easy for you to trust God when things are going your way. It's easy for you to trust God in your pleasure. But are you willing to trust Him in your pain? The David and Saul story gives us a glimpse of how the kingdom of God works in a broken and fallen world that needs healing. Yet later in life, unfortunately, David too will fail and he will cling to his own crown and he will value what he wants above all else and he won't trust God and he and the kingdom will suffer for it. And at the end of the story, we'll still be searching for a better king. 
Do you hear the beauty of the gospel in today's story? Do you see it calling out to you? Do you see the beauty of the story of the true king that lays aside his crown and steps down from the most high throne of all? And he steps into the sorrow of a broken world to heal it. And at every point of the way, instead of crowning himself, he becomes a servant and continues to step into the conflict that the Father places him so that he might bring healing and restoration. And Jesus rejects Satan's offer to have his kingdom now without suffering, and instead he chooses to wait. And Jesus doesn't fight the soldiers that come to arrest him when his disciples draw their swords. Instead, he tells them to put him away, and he walks up to his enemy, and he heals his ear. And in Gethsemane, the night before he dies, he doesn't back out as he wrestles with the most extreme weight of knowing what he is about to go through. And when the Father continuously points to the cross, he lays down his crown, and he says, I know this is going to hurt, but I know that you love me. And I put my life in your hands. And just like today's story, life continued to narrow and close in around him. And Jesus' story narrowed and closed in to the darkest cave of all, his own tomb. And all of this, the kingdom of God is won by Jesus, who instead of holding on to his own crown, he humbles himself. He grabs hold of his cross, and he lifts up his arms and his hands, showing peace to all who would gaze upon him. And instead of valuing himself, he entrusted himself to the goodness of the Father to deliver him. And Jesus received something far better than any toy or trinket that this world could ever offer. And he has been exalted and given a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And He is a good King. And He is the only one that will ever, ever be able to take your pain and turn it into something precious. But to do that, you have to let go of your crown and make His story your story. Let's pray. Father, we grip too tightly to the things of this world. We are blind to its consequences and effects. And we demand allegiance from those who are around us. But how gracious You are to step into our lives. And even though it hurts, it's better in the end. Father, I pray that You'd continue to show us the way of the kingdom that those who give up their life will find it, that those who are last are actually first, that those who give up everything will receive something far better. Father, I pray for healing in our church as a result of each one of us laying down our crowns and stepping into the conflicts and messes that we have all created, and that we would bring healing, like Jesus, to a broken and desperate world. 
You are our good King. And there will be a moment when we do not trust You. But I pray, Father, that Your Spirit would guide us. I pray that it would work on our hearts. And I pray that it would loosen our hands from our own crowns. And that we would cast them before You and entrust ourselves to the One who raises from the dead. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.